So this is the second week in a row that I've put in the bulletin that our reading is, you know, a, a particular verse, so from verse 1 to verse 27, but it's really the whole chapter. So this is the second time I've done this to our readers. So grateful for our scripture readers for reading whole chapters of scripture for us. How many of you have ever done one of those um, ancestry, those DNA tests? Have any of you done that? Ooh, not very many of you. Okay. I know some people don't really believe that's a thing, but it's okay. Go with me now. A couple of years ago, uh, several of my friends and I decided that we were going to do one of those DNA tests to learn a little bit more about where we came from. And so I learned from that test that I am 64% European Jewish. That could have told you. <laughs> you guys were wondering, but... That's my, um, it's my mom's side of the family, which has its roots in Russia and Austria in what used to be Czechoslovakia. And then on my dad's side, I'm 29% German. So it was fun to learn a little bit about my personal makeup. But what was far more amazing to me was what I learned about my family. So unfortunately, on my mom's side, we have only ever been able to go as far back as my great-great-grandfather. His name was Morris Decker and he's from Austria. We've never been able to go any further on that side of the family. But on my dad's side of the family, we were able to go back to my 10 times great-grandfather, whose name was Christian Zarva, who was born in 1578 in Germany. So Zarvia turned into Zarva, which turned into Zerbi with an E, which was actually my family name until three generations ago, just three generations ago, when somehow it became Zerbi with a Y. So one of my great uncles thinks that that was actually an accident, and so he actually changed his family's name back to Zerbi with an E. So it's very possible I've been spelling my last name wrong my whole life, but I'll never know, I guess. All that said, it's really kind of cool to learn about where you've come from. If I had all the time in the world, I would love to learn more about my ancestors. When I came across my 10 times great-grandfather Christian, I found a Zarvia Zerbi family crest. And it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen because I never thought about my name having meaning before. I never thought about the rich history that was attached to my name before. I never thought about my family name having any kind of significance. But names matter, don't they? Maybe because we live in a culture now where people name their children ridiculous things like Pilot Inspector and Your Majesty and Fifi Trixie Bell. These are legitimate celebrity baby names, by the way. Maybe because we live in that kind of culture, it's hard for us to remember that names matter, but they do. They really do. What we call people matters. When you're in a relationship with somebody, lots of you maybe have cute pet names for your significant other. When you are around close friends that you've known for a long, long time, you often call them by a nickname maybe that you've called them your whole life. We love to call people that we love by names that remind them and us that they are special to us. It's a way of identifying not only who that person is, but who that person is to us. While our names matter to God as well, which we'll talk more about as we get going here. Today we are diving into week three of our series, Redeemed, where we have gone back to the very beginning of God's word to help us see that God has been doing this gracious work of redemption in our lives since the very beginning. Our ongoing hope with this series is that by the time we get to Easter Sunday, we would be able to celebrate that through Jesus Christ, God did exactly 
what he always said he was going to do. And so two weeks ago, we talked about the story of Adam and Eve in the garden and what happened to humanity when they made the decision to put something else above God in their lives. We talked about how that changed everything, how that first act of sin, that first act of disobedience cut off our perfect access to God. And then last week, we talked about the difficult text of Noah and the flood, that after just 10 generations, humanity had become so wicked and sin had become so all-consuming that God destroyed it all with only Noah and his family and the animals on the ark surviving. It was the first time that we saw God use the language of covenant or promise as he said, never again. Never again will I destroy the world with a flood. Never again. And he offered a sign or a symbol of his covenant with Noah and all of the generations to follow. And that sign was a rainbow that was hung up in the sky, a reminder that God will always do what he says he's going to do. The promise has already been fulfilled. So we saw where the beginning, we saw there in that story, the beginning of a God who makes promises. We saw the beginning of a God who keeps his promises. So just three chapters after that, a man named Abram comes onto the scene. And it's remarkable that Genesis 12 is the first time that we see Abram, because by Genesis 12, Abram is already 75 years old. What we see in chapter 12 is God calling Abram and his wife Sarai to take everything that they have to pick it up and to leave. Where are they going? Well, God left that part out. He doesn't tell them where they're going. He just tells them that they are going to the land that he will eventually show them. And in this great act of obedience, they do it. They pack up and they head out. So other than their age, the significant thing worth mentioning here is that Abram and Sarai were childless. In ancient culture, and to a lesser but still true degree today, not having children was a source of great shame that was imposed upon people. And Abram and Sarai, at the ages of 75 and 65, knew that their opportunity to change this shameful part of their lives was probably gone. Despite what was logical on every conceivable level, in chapter 12 of Genesis, God tells Abram that he will make Abram a great nation and that he will bless Abram and make his name great. Well, there was no way for this to happen unless Abram and Sarai had a child, and so they waited. But years passed, and still they were childless. How would God fulfill this promise when they have no children? And so by the time we get to Genesis chapter 15, Abram is not so thrilled. And you can just imagine how frustrated and confused he is. And so Abram basically asks God, God, what is the deal? You said that you would make a great nation out of me, but here we are, still childless. And so with no children of our own, everything that we own is going to go to somebody else, a servant in our household, after we die. And God's response to that is to send Abram outside. Go outside, Abram. It's dark outside. 
He tells Abram to look up. Do you see all those stars? Count them, which is ridiculous. He couldn't have done that. Count them. That is how many descendants you are going to have. And so in that moment, God reassures Abram of the promise that he made with him. But yet again, more years go by. And Abram and Sarai are getting even older. And they are still childless. And so they decide to take matters into their own hand. Maybe Sarai thinks she's the problem. After all, God only made this promise with Abram, not to her. And so Abram tells, and Sarai tells Abram to go to their maidservant, Hagar. And the last verse of chapter 16 says this, the last two verses. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son that she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. And then silence. Between the last verse of chapter 16 and the first verse of chapter 17, there are 13 years of silence. And then when Abram was 99 years old, God broke his silence and appeared to Abram and said this, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers or will exceedingly increase your numbers. So God not only confirms his promise to Abram, but he tells Abram to walk before me and be blameless. Or some other translations will say walk before me and be complete. So what does that mean, to walk before God and be complete? Well, we know that it is an imperative. It is a command. God is telling Abram to be absolutely uncompromising and completely undivided in his obedience and loyalty to the Lord. God is not looking for perfection here. He's looking for faithfulness and obedience. And God follows that command up with a promise. This promise, as writer, author, speaker, teacher, Walter Brueggemann says, he says, this is a unilaterally established covenant which binds Abram to the purpose and power of God. You will multiply exceedingly, God says, which is so cool because it's the same exact promise that was spoken over creation in Genesis 1. In the face of Abram's exhausted old age, this command and then this promise together create an entirely new life for Abram. God's appearance massively counters Abram's despairing old age. And so God says to Abraham, starting in verse 4, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful or exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, 
where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So a couple of seriously significant things happen in these four verses here. God affirms the incredible promise that he made to Abram. It's not like Abram voted on whether or not he was in. He was just in. He doesn't verbally agree to it. The covenant or promise just is because God said so. And Abram can decide if he wants to participate in it or not, but his participation or not doesn't change the fact that God has established this covenant and that God will be faithful to it. God has claimed Abram's life and is promising him a future that he never could have imagined. And so God tells Abram that he will make him exceedingly fruitful. Think about how cool that is. This promise that Abram will be exceedingly fruitful. It is the exact opposite of the utter barrenness that Abram and Sarai have been experiencing their entire lives. God promises them the opposite of what they have known all of these years. Then God says that he will establish his covenant forever. This promise isn't just for Abram here and now. This is a promise that will constantly be renewed, that will constantly and forever be reliable for Abram and for all of the generations that will follow. Part of this promise was also that God would give land to the people of Israel. He says, I will give you land for an everlasting possession. And this is similar to what God said to Abram. He and Sarai were barren and God promised them a child. The people of Israel had no land and God is now saying that they will have land everlasting. And the last thing which we'll talk about in a few minutes is the significance of God changing their names. And so maybe you listen to this story and you're like, who really cares? I didn't know Abram. I didn't know Sarai. Who cares that God made a promise to them? Who cares that the Israelites were given land as part of this promise? None of this affects me. In fact, at community night this past Wednesday, we were talking about some of the difficult texts in the Old Testament, and someone brought up how difficult it is to, to see God as good if, all you, if you didn't know the rest of the story and all you ever read was the Old Testament. And while I agree with that, I agree that we only see a fullness of God when we see the presence of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, which doesn't happen until the New Testament. I don't want you to give up on this part of the Bible. Last year, a very well-known, very well-respected preacher was unfortunately quoted as saying that Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. And it broke my heart that a pastor said that. We do not get all of the information that we need or that we were intended to get about God just from Jesus alone. God inspired and gave us this book that we would know him better and that subsequently we would know who we are because of who God is. And there are some incredible things that we learn about God and about who God is throughout the Old Testament that we wouldn't otherwise learn about God. For instance, we learn so much about God's generosity and how far beyond our imagination it goes. In this one covenant, 
God promises a child to a couple who will be 99 and 100 years old when the baby is born. A couple that has longed for a child their entire lives. And God promises land in perpetuity for a nation of people who have been without land forever. In each of these situations, God looks at total depravity and barrenness and desperation, and he doesn't just provide. He provides with words like exceedingly and everlasting. I'm not just going to multiply your name, Abraham. I'm going to multiply your name exceedingly. I'm going to exceedingly multiply your name. And I'm not going to just give you a place to lay your head, Israel. I'm going to give you your own land everlasting. It's this incredible picture of how God's goodness can and does override the most dismal of situations. That still holds true for us today. And we first learned about this quality of God in this story. Isn't that awesome? We are beginning to see the characteristics of God and the very heart of God and the way that he communicates with his people in these stories. So back to this particular promise. There's a second piece to this covenant, and it reveals the relational nature of God. Sorry. The second side of this covenant is for Abraham to keep the covenant. And it's not just the word keep. In Hebrew... The word here indicates that God is asking Abraham to keep this covenant under watchful care with great attentiveness. Just like God's covenant with Noah, which we talked about last week, this covenant between God and Abraham is for all time. And just like God's covenant with Noah, this covenant is unconditional. And just like God's covenant with Noah, God made a sign for this covenant a sign. It's the exact same Hebrew word that is used in both stories, in both covenants. In the covenant with Noah, the sign was a rainbow, that any time they saw a rainbow in the sky, they would be reminded of God's promise. So here the sign is a little, well, it's a little less rainbows and butterflies, because the sign in this covenant is circumcision, which I know is just what you were hoping we'd talk about at church this morning. We're not going to spend a lot of time here, but I do think it's really important for us to try to understand why circumcision was the sign of this particular covenant. So Brueggemann said that circumcision is a sign, an assertion of being present in the world differently, not according to dominant values and expectations. This sign must be concrete and intentional and in some way costly. So circumcision was already a practice amongst Israel's neighbors at the time. So it's not as if God just made this up. He was using an already existing practice. In other words, he took something ordinary and he made it holy. Some people have compared this to what God does with water at baptism. He takes something as ordinary as water and he makes it holy. And this particular sign of circumcision obviously has a different level of investment, right? It is something that is permanent and personal and painful. 
It's a sign that Abraham had fully and completely given himself and his life over to God. And the thing that I really want to note here before we move on is that in verses 12 and 13, it says that this sacrament, this sacrament of circumcision, is for those who are born as well as for those who are bought. So what does that mean and why is that significant? Those who are born are going to be all of the ancestors that are blood relatives of Abraham. They're already included in this covenant with God because they are born into Abraham's bloodline. We would expect that, right? But this covenant also includes those who were bought, which means they are outsiders to Abraham's bloodline. So this would have included people who came into Israel as prisoners of war, It would have included people who came into Israel as purchased slaves. The point is that it didn't matter who they were or where they came from. They would get to be full participants, equal participants in this covenant, in this promise from God. And so in this story, for the very first time, we learn another new quality of God. Here we begin to learn of God's radically inclusive nature. It's incredible. So the promises made in verses 4 through 8, and then the sign is given in verses 9 through 14, and then starting in verse 15, God starts to give some incredibly important specifics about how he is going to fulfill this promise. And this is also really amazing if you stop and think about it. Again, they are 99 and 89 years old at this point. It has now been 24 years since God first told Abram that he would make a great nation out of him and that he would make his name great. 24 years. In that time, they took matters into their own hands and they used a common practice of their time to have a child. So biologically, Ishmael was Abraham's child. And so Abraham, up until this very moment, fairly assumed that God was going to use Ishmael to fulfill his promise and that Sarai would have nothing to do with it. But that's not the case, is it? Starting in verse 15, God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations Kings of people will come from her. It's incredible. This promise is fulfilled through Sarai, who is now Sarah, a name which means princess, for she will be the mother of royalty. For nearly 90 years, Sarah has lived a life of barrenness, and now she is to be the carrier of God's blessing, the one through whom utter barrenness will be transformed, not only into something beautiful, but she will be the carrier of the one through whom an entirely new social order would come into being. And if you were to skip all the way to the very first page of the New Testament, it starts with the genealogy of Jesus. And the genealogy of Jesus goes back to this very moment and this very couple. It's incredible. 
We can't unhitch ourselves from this text or the rest of it doesn't have any meaning. And what about the name changes? We have to talk about the significance of the name changes. I said at the beginning that names matter. What we are called and what we call each other matters. It's why I cannot stand that saying, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. I know that we taught our kids that phrase to help them bounce back from playground teasing, but it is a terrible phrase. Names can hurt us. Names do hurt us because what we are called and what we call other people matters. At 99 years old, God changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. At 89 years old, God changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess, which foreshadows the royalty that is going to come from her bloodline. They have lived their lives filled with shame in a culture where one's worth was determined by the number of children that one had. And Abram, which meant, when he was just Abram, his name meant exalted or high father. So imagine the shame of walking around with that name for 99 years without a child. And so I have to believe that that is why Abraham laughed when God told him that they would have a child. <coughs> Excuse me. I imagine it wasn't the kind of laughter that comes after somebody tells a funny joke. I imagine that it was the kind of laughter that comes when you tell someone something that's truly unbelievable and you kind of chortle. Do you know what I mean? Like if I told you that I was going to finish my sermon and then I'm off to have lunch with the Queen of England, you're not going to laugh hysterically. You're going to kind of chuckle, right? I think. Maybe it seems quite likely that I would go have lunch with the Queen of England. That's what I imagine that Abraham did when God told him that they were going to have a child. It's an absurd thought. It's ridiculous. And he and Sarah have been disappointed their entire lives. And so what reason had they to think that something so ridiculous would come to pass? It was laughable, and so Abraham laughed. But God said that it was true. And he said, within the year, they are going to have a son, and they were to call him Isaac. Does anyone know what Isaac means? It means laughter. Ha, isn't that the best? It means laughter. Abraham assumed that his future was dependent on Ishmael. He thought that he knew the ways of God. But God was going to create a future for Abraham and for Abraham's son and for all of the generations that were to follow, and God was going to do it on God's terms. God's way is not Abraham's way. It is another important thing that we learn about God through this text. He has a plan for our lives that is not our own, that we can't often see, and that we certainly wouldn't believe. But God's ways are not our ways. I keep quoting Brueggemann here because he wrote this incredible commentary on this text, and I love this line. He said, Israel embraces a future it cannot see, which is authored and authorized by the one uncontained by present barrenness. Israel embraces a future it cannot see, but which is authored and authorized by the one uncontained in present barrenness. Doesn't that tell us so much about who God is and about how much he loves us? God calls us into a future 
which we cannot yet see. A future that is authored by the one who cannot be contained by our present barrenness. Or maybe barrenness is not the word that you would use, so fill in your own word there. Your future is authored by the one who cannot be contained by your present pain, or by your present failure, or by your present doubt. Your future is authored by the one who can't be contained by your present brokenness or your present circumstances, whatever they are. God's way is not your way. The future that you see for yourself is so incredibly limited. The future that God sees for us, well, it would probably make us laugh because it's so much greater than anything we could ever dream up. And so God has a new name for us. He calls us to cast off whatever names we have given ourselves. What name have you given yourself? Bad parent? Distant spouse? Failure? Stress case? Doubter? Screw up? Broken? Unlovable? Unworthy? Shameful? These are not the names that God has for you. Abram and Sarai thought that they knew their names too, but they didn't. God had more for them. But for them to come to know their true identity, they had to reorient themselves to their new names, to their God-given names. God is calling us to cast off the names by which we have been known or the names we have been calling ourselves and to reorient ourselves to the name that God has given us as a beloved daughter or son. We We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are sons and daughters, chosen by God, belonging to God, and relentlessly loved by God. So God invites us this morning to embrace the future that we cannot yet see, but which is authored and authorized by the one uncontained by our past or present circumstances. Let's pray. God, I know that for many of us, sometimes it's just difficult to connect with these stories from so long ago that had to do with people we've never met in situations we've never been in. And so, God, this morning, I pray a couple of things. I pray that you would give us a love for your word. I pray that you would give us a love for your whole word. God, that you would help us to know that some of the ways that we know about who you are and what you have done and who we are, we learn about from these texts that are a little hard for us to read. And so, God, I just pray that you would continue to make yourself known to us. We give you thanks, Lord, for the story of Abraham and Sarah, for their obedience and their faithfulness. God, for the reality that as we read through their story, we know that they were just human. That they were just people trying to follow you, at times frustrated, at times feeling as if you had forgotten them. And yet, Lord, you showed up in an unbelievable way. For through them, not only did you make a promise to us, but 
through them we see our very bloodline and the bloodline of Christ. And so God, in our own lives, I pray that you would help us to throw away and cast off the names that we have given to ourselves or the names that we have allowed other people to give to us which are not our true identity. God, for those who have chosen to follow you, we are made new in Christ. The moment we said yes to you, we were given a new identity and a new name. So God, may we no longer live in the past, but may we embrace a future that even though we can't see it, we know is authored and authorized by the one who isn't contained by anything in this world. We give you thanks, Lord, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.